As I begin my message this morning, I want to start with a question. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you were pretty down? Maybe even uh, down on yourself. Maybe you didn't feel like you measured up to others, discouraged because you experienced a series of tough circumstances. Maybe you felt like you were stuck in a rut with not a lot of hope of any other opportunities or changing anything. I want to tell you a little bit of my story, actually, in the beginning of this message. Uh, that's kind of the way I felt my freshman year in high school. I'll explain it to you. My, my dad was in the radio business when I was growing up. And in the radio business, if you wanted to move up, you had to move somewhere else. And so we moved quite a bit when I was growing up. We lived in five different cities. And moving's not so tough when you're preschool or your elementary age. But as you get older, it gets harder. And uh, my seventh grade, middle of my seventh grade year, my parents came to, to, me, to me and my sister and they said, hey, we're going to be going to Beaumont, Texas from Topeka, Kansas. And my dad had taken a new job in Beaumont, Texas. And it felt devastating. We'd been in T- Topeka for about seven years. And I just, it just rocked my world to think we were moving somewhere else. And so we go to Beaumont, Texas. And it wasn't like moving to just another state. It was like moving to a foreign country. I mean, they speak another language. Paul, I don't know if he's still in here, but man, like it was hard to understand them. And they kind of thought the same thing of me. So I felt a little bit like out of place. And, you know, when you're in middle school, it's tough enough already. And so that was just a tough year, tough transition. Um, by, the, by my eighth grade year, I began to make a few friends. My, my family had found a fairly good church with a good youth group. And so things were improving and, and you know, starting to feel a little bit more like home. And I was getting excited for high school. You know, Texas football in fall is just awesome. And uh, so... But the beginning of my freshman year in high school, my parents come back to me and say, guess what? And I could see the look on their faces. And I was like, no, no, I don't want to hear this. My dad said, hey, I bought a radio station in Salina, Kansas. We're moving to Salina. I was like, oh, man, are you kidding me? We're moving again? And so, you know, just tough. And not only moving was tough, but I'll be honest with you, uh, when we lived in Topeka, Kansas, we'd drive down I-70 going west to western Kansas to see my grandparents on a farm in western Kansas. I can literally remember driving past Salina, Kansas, and seeing the grain elevators, and oftentimes we were coming through a harvest, and you'd see the combines and the trucks. And I remember thinking as a child, who would want to live in Salina, Kansas? <laughs> Give me some grace. It's going to get better here. <clears throat> uh, and now my parents are like, we're moving to Salina. And I just was sitting there thinking, it's like God is mad at me for thinking those thoughts. And this is going to be a joke on me. And it was like terrible and devastating. And so my freshman year was pretty miserable. Moved in in the middle of the freshman year. And I felt lost, kind of alone, lacked any self-confidence. I was just really struggling. And beyond that, um, as we were moving, you know, you're kind of the new person. And you're trying to figure out how you're going to fit in. And, and I'd grown like nine inches in two years. And so... I'm all of a sudden, I'm six foot five and haven't quite gotten the coordination stuff figured out. And, you know, I just want to blend in. And when you're six five, Stephen, you know that you don't, you don't blend in, right? Like they can see you anywhere. And the other thing that was kind of strange was like, I sang first soprano in the children's choir. And like in about six months, my voice went boom. It was like down here, bullfrog. And I was kind of like, I just didn't want to talk at all because I thought it sounded really strange. So just, you know, tough, tough transition. But the amazing thing was when we got here after a while, God put some people in my life uh, who didn't see me the way I saw myself. Now, I'm convinced they saw potential in me. 
They saw God's fingertips on me. They saw gifts and talent and a personality that maybe were a little bit rough, but, but it just needed some encouragement and some nurture. And, and all three of these people that God placed in my life that freshman year in high school, they were Christians. Imagine that. One was an assistant principal at South High School. His name was Kirk Pope. And, and Mr. Pope would love to just hang out in the commons area of South High School, and, and he would just encourage students. Now, how often do you see a principal that just likes to encourage students? Maybe you're out there, I don't know, but my experience has been principals aren't always those super encouraging people. But Kirk Pope was that way, and he was a believer, and, and he ran the Fellowship of Christian Athletes group at South High School. And he invited me to come and be a part of Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I began to meet some people there that were just some great, cool friends over the years. And that was a great experience. And we were looking for a church, and we spent quite a while looking, and one day we showed up the doorstep of First Covenant Church. It was a small church just down the road from us at the time. And we'd never heard of the covenant. And so we go to this little church, and I go to the, Sunday, the high school Sunday school class, and there's this amazing teacher teaching high school Sunday school, Margaret Logan. She was a phenomenal teacher, the best Sunday school teacher I've ever had. And Margaret has this amazing gift of encouragement. Like, you can't be around Margaret and not feel better about yourself. And so I would go to class... And I always feel better when I got out of class than I went to class. And I remember the first time being in that class, I got in the car that, that day after church, and I told my parents, I don't care where you guys go to church, I'm going to First Covenant. So it was only two blocks down the, the, from our house, and I said, I can walk. So you guys, if you don't like it, you can look, but I'm done. So then we, we all were going, though. We started going to First Covenant. And, and uh, there was another couple, this is the third individual in a group, the, this amazing young couple who was at First Covenant, Matt and Janet George, and they were running a citywide youth ministry. It was a non-denominational youth ministry, and they were just this amazing combination of evangelism and discipleship, and they just poured their lives into my life and in probably 50 to 100 other students' lives in high school. And my spiritual growth just took off from hanging out with them and being a part of that group. So God allowed these folks and others uh, to look at me and not just see who I was, a struggling high school student, but somehow they could see my God-given potential. And they began to call me forward into God's wonderful plan for my life. And I just want to quickly tell you that my last three years in high school, I loved it. I thrived. I loved being in Salina. It was like the greatest place to be in. That's how I reflect on it now. So see, it did get better. It got a whole lot better. Uh, so what changed my attitude about being in Salina, Kansas? It was the relationships. It was the people that God had placed in my life. Oftentimes, that is the thing that makes the big difference. And, and so I think it's all about relationships. And, and as I think about that, I told my story. The one thing I just would encourage you is, who are the people in your life that have invested in you, that made a, have made a difference? They've been the ones that have called out that God-given potential in your lives. It's good to reflect on that and remember who those folks are and what God was able to accomplish through those people in our lives. Well, this passage that was read before the message this morning uh, that's about Levi, the tax collector, and Jesus' interaction with him, Levi is rejected by his own people because he's a tax collector. He's rejected especially by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the very ones who should be drawing people into a relationship with God, Rejected this guy on every level. And yet Jesus, who's the holy, righteous Son of God, has the ability to look on this reject named Levi 
and seemingly see what no one else could see. Not just who he was, but who he could become. Isn't that amazing? Jesus can look at each of us, and it doesn't matter who we are or what we've done or what we haven't done, whether we're a failure or a reject or we've been experiencing some struggle with some sin in our life. Jesus has this amazing ability to look at each one of us and see what we can become. Jesus looks at us and sees what we can become. So in this passage out of Luke chapter 5, it's about this interaction with Levi, and it even has the Pharisees who are supposed to be representing God to the Jewish people, and yet they're missing the very heart of God in the whole thing. And in the beginning of this passage, we're told that Levi is a Jewish tax collector. He collects taxes for the Roman government. And the Roman government had a really interesting way of paying their tax collectors. What they would do is they would pick a tax collector, they'd, sh- they'd give them an area of land, and they'd say, okay, you collect the taxes for this whole area of land. Here's what the, the quota is. Here's what we expect in money from that area of land. Anything you collect a- above that is yours to keep. And so they gave those uh, tax collectors all the authority. They had all the authority to collect taxes. And basically, the tax collectors became like extortionists. They would take people for as much money as they could get from them. And so oftentimes what they would do is they'd set up their little tax booth somewhere where maybe there was a heavy, heavily trafficked road. Or they'd go to where crowds were at. And, and one of the reasons scholars think that tax collectors came into play with Jesus so much is because he was drawing huge crowds. And so the tax collectors probably loved following him around because they could get all the people and get them to pay taxes. And so we have this encounter where Jesus comes up to Levi. Now, tax collectors in the Roman Empire, they became really rich, but, but especially Jewish tax collectors, uh, it was at the expense of being hated and viewed as traitors by their own people. For a Jewish person to collect these taxes, sometimes they used the help of the Roman soldiers. It was viewed as a betrayal, not only of their fellow Jews, but even of God himself. As a result, tax collectors, they were excluded from the synagogue. They were denied access to the temple. Even if a tax collector wanted to give a tenth, a tithe, to the temple, they were denied. They were not allowed to give any of their money to the worship or to the temple. And so when Jesus sees Levi collecting taxes and he comes to him and he says to him, follow me, this request by Jesus, a rabbi, to follow is a request for for Levi to leave everything behind. And to break, up all, break off all of his ties. And the fact that Jesus was making such a request to one who was outside the worshiping community of the Jewish faith, that reveals that in Jesus, God has broken through all the barriers that were insurmountable. It's precisely the unclean, the disobedient, the sinner who's called in this case. And even in selecting his disciples, Jesus doesn't choose the best and the brightest, does he? No, he chooses the outcast. He chooses the despised. He chooses the rejected. And Levi certainly fit that bill. The attitude of Jesus towards Levi was in complete contrast to the other religious people of his day. Those whom they rejected, he accepted. Those whom he despised, or they despised, he loved. Those whom they avoided, Jesus sought. In the calling of Levi by Jesus, grace became real and available to all. Jesus recognized his need for, or Levi recognized his need for Jesus, and he responded. Again, Jesus sees what we can become. Just to give you an example about that, I want to tell you a little bit of a story about a guy I met when I was at my first church serving on staff. His name was Andrew Fletcher. Andrew 
uh, came with his wife to visit at our church, and they, they brought their six children. Now, anytime somebody shows up with six children, you pay attention. But it was interesting because three of the children were his by a previous marriage, and three of the children were hers by a previous marriage. Sounds a little bit like the Brady Bunch, doesn't it? But if you're someone who's experienced blended family, most of the time it really doesn't work out that way. It's not as nice and clean as the Brady Bunch. And it was challenging for Andrew and for his wife and for the kids. The other thing that was interesting about Andrew, Andrew was from England. Uh, He had grown up in Manchester, England. And I learned a little bit of his story later, and I'm going to share it with you at the beginning. Uh, Andrew, as he was growing up, his parents would take he and his siblings to church at the Anglican church every Sunday. They were very faithful in going to worship. But Andrew's dad struggled in a couple of areas of his life. He struggled with alcohol abuse. He struggled with physical abuse of Andrew's mom and even, even the kids to some extent. And so Andrew's mom basically decided to leave him and take the kids, and she ended up divorcing him. And the Anglican church at that time, like late 60s, early 70s, he said, really, really didn't look kindly upon someone who would divorce their husband, even for those reasons. And so the church that they had grown up in and they attended, all of a sudden as they would come to church, people would begin to stop talking to them. They began to shun them, ignore them. The families wouldn't invite the kids to participate with their kids anymore. And Andrew says, you know, that was really a struggle. I knew something had changed. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. It caused me to be confused about the church, confused about God, and even eventually led to bitterness about both of those two things. So fast forward about 30 years, and Andrew's now in the United States. Uh, He had come to the United States because he was a professional soccer player. He played for the Kansas City Comets. And by this point, when he's coming to our church, he had retired, but he's newly married. They had just been married for about uh, a month when they started coming to our church. The interesting thing was his wife, Terry, was a believer. She was a Christian. And when they dated, she said, Andrew, I know you struggle with the church, but she said, you need to understand, if you're going to marry me, you have to be committed that you're going to come to church every Sunday and you're going to bring our kids and and they're going to grow up in the church. And Andrew was like, "Uh, wow, like that'd be the hardest thing for me to do. And yet he's looking at Terry, he's going, I really like this woman, so... You know, he, he did it. He committed. He said, I'll do it. I'll go to church every Sunday. I'm not excited about it, but I'll, I'll do it. I'll be committed to that. And so they ended up getting married, and they show up a month later at our church. And I could tell the first time I saw him, he was really nervous. He was anxious. Uh, you could tell he was uncomfortable. I talked to him before the service, uh, caught him after the service, and just asked the question, hey, Andrew, how'd it go for you? And he just said in a very short British way, he said, yeah, I it was a good service. He said, like, like no other church I've ever been at. And I didn't know quite how to take that. But they kept coming back week after week after week. And, and eventually, Andrew came up and talked to me, and he said, hey, Pastor Wes, could, could you come and meet with me? I've got some real serious questions about God and about the church. And I said, Andrew, I'd love to. That'd be great. Let's go, let's go meet. And eventually what happened is we started meeting once a week, and we started doing Bible study together. And over about a period of six months, I had the opportunity to watch Andrew grow closer and closer to faith, and eventually he gave his life to the Lord. It was really exciting. And he talked about, you know, the thing that was the big difference maker for him him wasn't the Bible studies. Like, it wasn't my time with him. It was his time that he would come to church Sunday after Sunday, and people would greet him and meet him and accept him and engage with him and his family, invite them to events and just that kind of stuff. He began to realize, they really accept me. They really like me. And in many ways, Andrew's a little bit like Levi. He had developed 
kind of this perception that they reject me and they don't want me. I'm not valuable. But Jesus comes to Levi and he tells them a whole, he gives them a whole different message. He says, you're valuable. You're important. I, in fact, I want you to come and follow me. And in that response, Levi recognizes his need for Jesus. And he responded. Right? He did it. He left his tax booth. He gave up his business. He begins to follow Jesus. And again, Jesus sees what we can become. And so, even though he leaves the tax booth behind, he, we're told in the story, he invites Jesus to his house and he, he throws a big party, a banquet. And he invites all of his tax collector friends and, and others. And the others would have most certainly been other sinners, according to the Pharisees, because there's nobody who would go to a tax collector's house other than uh, other sinners. And so, he's got this big party over at his house and Jesus is there. And... and the tax collectors basically, in the Jewish mindset, they were on the same level as prostitutes. The religious people, upright citizens, wouldn't have wanted anything to do with either one of those. But Jesus loves both groups. He shows compassion toward both. And here we see him sharing a meal with tax collectors. And as a result of eating this meal with the tax collectors, the scribes and the Pharisees, they start complaining. They see him eating at the house of Levi. They're concerned for Jesus' The rabbi. He's not behaving as a Jewish rabbi should. Furthermore, they'd heard some of his teaching about the kingdom of God, and they were concerned that Jesus was including all the wrong people in the kingdom of God. And so they complained to Jesus and the disciples. And the criticism of the religious leaders was that Jesus and the disciples ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was going against all the normal methods of training his followers. He not only attends parties with sinners, but he invites them to be his disciples. And Levi, again, he recognized his need for Jesus and he responded. The Pharisees, however, they ignored their need for Jesus and they refused him. Jesus answers their complaining. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees, they're so caught up and they're good, living a good and, and a proper life and appearing good and feeling confident that they look good enough. They didn't realize they were just as lost as Levi was. Only Levi knew he didn't measure up. The Pharisees, they didn't understand that they didn't measure up to a holy God either. Romans uh, 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our problem is sometimes we choose to compare ourselves to other people. And sometimes when we compare ourselves to other people, we'll, we'll compare ourselves to other people who we think aren't quite as good as we are. And that makes us feel better and, and kind of look better and, and all that. But we need to understand we're not supposed to be comparing ourselves to others. If we're going to compare ourselves to anyone, God invites us to compare ourselves to Christ. And if we compare ourselves to Christ, wow, we're all in trouble. Because none of us come anywhere near the holiness and the righteousness of Christ in of ourselves. You can be pretty much certain that if you think you're in a better spiritual situation than somebody else, I'm the good person, the other person's in trouble. If we think those thoughts, then the tables are turned and we are the ones who are in desperate need of the grace of God. More so than the person that we think maybe is a worse sinner than we are. I wish it wasn't true, but sometimes I struggle with an attitude that can go that direction like the Pharisees. Most often, my poor attitude it comes up in small and really subtle ways. Uh, for example, I'm in a men's Bible study that meets on Friday mornings, and mo- more recently, we've been studying a book called God Kills. 
Can you entitle a book, God Kills? It's a book about, literally, that God looks at the things that, that in, our, in our lives that, 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 draw, that take us away from God. And that God is going to be at work killing those things in us that take us away from being in His presence. Great book. And so the first chapter in this book is on humility. So we're supposed to read the book and then come to the breakfast on Friday morning and talk about this book and what's it, what's it mean. And so we get to the first breakfast, and, and there's eight of us, and, and you could tell pretty early in the conversation there's probably two or three of the guys that they haven't even read the chapter yet. And I'm thinking, what? Like, you didn't, you didn't even read the chapter? You know, and I'm starting to think to myself, what's their problem? Man, they're just not quite as good as I am. And sure, you know, I'm glad I have it better together than they do. And you remember what the chapter's about, don't you? Right? And so, you know, I'm thinking to myself, patting myself on the back, well, you know, Wes, in the grand scheme of things, you're in pretty good shape. You're pretty good. And so we're reading this chapter on humility, and halfway through that study, like, God just touches my brain and goes, it's all of a sudden I realize what's going on. And I remember sitting there at the table, this is all going on in my mind, I haven't said anything, but I remember sitting at the table thinking, okay, Jesus is at this table with us, and if I could just imagine him at this moment, he's got his hands on his head, and he's shaking his head, and he's going, Father... What do I do? Look at this guy. I mean, he reads a chapter on humility and he's feeding his ego over there. Like, what's up with that? Okay, Gibson, back in the line, buddy. You're done. But Jesus really isn't so interested in us thinking that we're better than some other poor soul. He'd rather just see us loving and encouraging that other person and seeing their God-given potential. So he was in, he's inviting all of us that may struggle at times with having that attitude of being a Pharisee is don't go there. And if you do, turn it around. You see, the only difference between Levi and the Pharisees is that Levi recognizes his need for God's mercy and he responds. The Pharisees, they didn't recognize their need and they rejected Jesus. Boy, we always need to be on guard that we don't fall into or slip into that mindset like the Pharisees. And it can be really easy to do. Subtle sometimes that it happens. So, in thinking about that, my thought is, can we just all admit our need for mercy, for God's mercy in our life? We're all in constant need of God's continual mercy. We are a sin-sick people, and Jesus is the great physician, and He comes to offer what we can't do for ourselves. Here's the heartbeat of the the good news of, of Christ, the kingdom of God. Are you ready? While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. That's it. Jesus saw our need while we were still sinners. He loves us sinners so much, He was willing to take on our sins upon Himself and die on the cross for us that we might have the holiness, the righteousness of Christ. Why is He willing to do that? Well, I believe it's because Jesus sees our God-given potential and He sees the need of humanity. He also saw a tax collector named Levi, but he also saw who Levi could become. Levi becomes one of the twelve disciples that followed Jesus around for three years and does ministry with him. And he later changes his name to Matthew. And do you know what Matthew means? It means the gift of God. And Jesus and the other disciples could look at Levi, the tax collector, and they could see Matthew, the gift of God. The Pharisees couldn't see that. And thinking about just this amazing, radical love and grace that Jesus offers to all, 
I just want to close with a couple of questions for us to reflect on for ourselves. The first question is, can you believe what Jesus sees in you? Sometimes that's the hardest thing, to believe that Jesus sees something that He can transform, that He can grow, that He can change me. God doesn't make junk. The Creator, our Creator, has made you and me in His image. He's given us God-given abilities and gifts. He's got a plan for our lives. Do you believe what Jesus sees in you? The second question is, are you willing to look for the God-given potential in others? Can we set aside the things that, make, that bother us about other people? Our insecurities, the thing that makes us want to look better than somebody else. Can we reach into this place where we go, I want to look for the God-given potential in that other person? Because when we decide to look for that God-given potential in others, that's when we're on a mission from God. Praise God. Jesus sees not just who we are, but who we can become. Let me offer a prayer as we close. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage that, that has this recorded in, for history about Jesus' interaction with Levi and even with the Pharisees. God, we thank you that Jesus could see in Levi what nobody else could see. He could see what Levi could become. And that he invited him into this amazing journey, this life of transformation, a life of purpose and meaning, a life that leads to salvation. God, we thank you that Jesus sees that in each one of us, that he's given his life for us. He loves us so much. God, help us to receive that gift of love and mercy. Help us to hold on to that, to respond like Levi did. And then God, help us also to take on the eyes and the mindset of Christ. And we come into interaction with other people that we can see beyond the barriers. That you give us the, the power of your, through the power of your Holy Spirit, the ability to see potential, the ability to see that there's something there that's more than what we see. And then to invite them into that journey with us to pursue Christ, deeper in Christ, further in mission. God, we thank you that you are at work in our lives, in our church, and in the world. We give you praise and glory in the name of Christ. Amen.